Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 9. We'll be discussing what it means to take up your cross daily to follow Jesus. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 9, verse 23, we'll begin our lesson. Why don't I open us up in prayer and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this day and for this group, for people gathering all over the country to be able to join together and study your word. Also, thank you for the people who will be listening to the podcast on down the road. Father, guide our discussions today as we study your word and continue our study of Luke. Whatever we're discussing, just have it continue to transform each of us into the people that you want us to be. And I ask that you speak through me, speak through those who speak up today. Let it be your words, not our words. We sure don't want to lead anyone astray. I just thank you so much for all the blessings you continue to pour out on each of us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are continuing our study of Luke 9. We didn't finish Luke 9 last time. We got about halfway through it. We've got a lot to cover today, so I'm just going to jump in, but I'm going to jump in at the last part of what we covered last week. So I'm going to jump in at verse 23 because it really sets up what we're going to be talking about in the rest of Luke 9 today. So let's start in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you the truth, There are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And that's where we left off last time. And I told you that this verse 27, while there are different views on what this could possibly mean, that there were people that were standing right there with Jesus who would not taste death until they saw the kingdom of God, There's different views on what that could mean. I think it's pretty clear, and I'm going to point that out and explain to you why I think it's clear as we continue the lesson today. First of all, it goes right into who some of those is talking about, where it says there are some of those standing here. When we go into verse 28, we see, I think some of those is referring to Peter, John, and James, three of Jesus' very closest apostles. Let's continue on and I'll come back and I'll also show you why I'm fairly certain what this is talking about. When we begin in verse 28, we're actually going to be talking about the transfiguration of Jesus. And I think that is what Jesus is talking about when he says that there will be those who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And what they're going to see is they're going to see Jesus transfigured in his glory just as he will appear when he comes back in his second coming. Peter and John and James are going to get to see that. So let's continue on. I'll come back and we'll discuss it a little bit more. Let me read on. So some eight days after these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. So he is basically glowing through his clothing is what they're seeing here. 
And by the way, why did he take these three? I think one of the reasons is in Deuteronomy 19.5, it requires for there to be truth. You had to have it evidenced by two to three witnesses. So he's taking two to three witnesses with him to see this transfiguration. And we're going to see shortly there's going to be others that join in. Verse 30, And behold, two men were talking with him, with Jesus. And they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory, so they're in their glorified state, were speaking of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So a couple of things before I go on, let me point out here. I think it's really interesting that here in this transfiguration of Jesus that's happening, God lets Moses come back and actually step foot on the promised land. Moses, you'll recall, actually died before the Israelites went into the promised land because Moses had struck the rock to get water out of it rather than following what God had told him to just command the rock to give water. And because of that, he was not allowed to take the Israelites into the promised land, even though he had led them around the desert for 40 years. So he was not allowed to go in. So I think it's interesting that now God brings him back to the promised land here as one of the two witnesses of Jesus's transfiguration. And I'll tell you a little bit more in just a minute about why is it that Moses and Elijah are there. I'll point that out here in just a second. But you can see that they're standing there talking to Jesus about what he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. So that also shows that they know about God's plan, that Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried. And then he's going to rise again on the third day for our salvation. Moses and Elijah, they're there. They know that's what God's plan is, and they're talking to Jesus about it. I think this also shows that we retain our identification when we get to heaven, when we get our glorified bodies. Now, these three, Peter, John, and James, they hadn't met Moses and Elijah before, so they didn't really know what they looked like. So Jesus must have introduced them, or they introduced themselves It's not really clear in Scripture when Old Testament saints will get their glorified bodies. It is clear for us as Christians, as believers, we get our glorified bodies when we arise to join Jesus in the rapture. I'll show you where I get that. If you'll hold your place here, let's go over to 1 Thessalonians 4. Just go over to the right a pretty long ways. (laughs) If you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far, come back over to the left, and you'll find Thessalonians And let me begin in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So these are Christians. Jesus is going to bring dead Christians, people who place their faith in Jesus Christ, So these are people who place their faith in Jesus after Jesus was here. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. So if we're alive when the rapture takes place, first the dead in Christ will rise up, go up to join him. And then those of us who are alive at that time at the rapture will go up to join him. 
verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Okay, it doesn't say this is not the second coming. doesn't say he comes down to earth. He just comes down from heaven. And we then arise up to go join him. You see, it says that he will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So this is talking about Christians in the rapture and how we will join Jesus just before the tribulation starts. It's less clear as to when Old Testament saints receive their resurrected bodies. I think most people think that that is going to happen after the tribulation and just prior to the millennium. I can give you some verses for that if you're interested. But apparently here you see Moses and Elijah have their glorified bodies. So let's go back over to Luke 9. That could be maybe God gave them theirs early just for this purpose. It could be they received them temporarily for this purpose during this transfiguration. I don't have a good answer for you for that. But in any event, I just wanted to point that out. So let's go back over to Luke 9. And we're now in verse 32. Now Peter and his companions, so that's James and John, they had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men standing with him. This sleep that they were in, remember, they went to go pray. They went up the mountain to go pray with Jesus, and this sleep that overcame them, it says they were overcome with it, so it was involuntary. It's not that they fell asleep because they weren't interested. Something caused them to go to sleep. And we're getting ready to see Peter, as he normally does, sticks his foot in his mouth. But let's read what Peter said, says to Jesus. Verse 33, And it came about, as these were parting from him, talking about Moses and Elijah, as they were departing from Jesus, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah not realizing what he was saying. So let's dig into this a little bit. First of all, Peter thinks that the kingdom has now come because Elijah was associated with the coming of the kingdom. We looked at that previously over in Malachi, Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 4 verses 5 through 6. Remember, they're all waiting for the kingdom to come. They're all waiting. They think Jesus is the conquering Messiah. He's going to overcome Rome and bring the kingdom, have it begin. And so he's thinking, gee, let's make these tabernacles, these booths. Another reason for that is the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths is going to be celebrated in the millennial kingdom. And so he's thinking, hey, it must be happening right now. You can look at that in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16. So he's thinking, okay, the kingdom's happening. Here's Elijah. We're supposed to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. Let's build these tabernacles or these booths. It's about to begin. But what he doesn't realize is that isn't going to happen yet. That's going to happen in the millennial kingdom, but Jesus has to die first. What's prophesied in Isaiah 53, that's God's plan. It can't be short-circuited. 
Jesus has to go be crucified and die for our sins before the millennial kingdom comes. Let's go back, pick up where we left off, verse 34. And while he was saying this, so while Peter is saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. So God interrupts Peter. This cloud represents God the Father's presence. In verse 35, it says, And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So he's basically saying, Peter, shut your mouth. This isn't the Feast of the Tabernacles. Just listen to what Jesus has to say. And it's interesting also that this is exactly what God the Father said about Jesus at Jesus' baptism that we saw when we were in Luke 3.22. Now, why would it be that Moses and Elijah, why are they also there? There are several thoughts on that. One is both Moses and Elijah had very unusual deaths. When Moses died, Satan and Michael, the archangel, they fought over Moses' body. You can look at that in Jude 9. And God actually buried Moses in a place that nobody could find. You can look at that in Deuteronomy 34, 6. So nobody knows where Moses' body was buried. Elijah also had an unusual death. In fact, he didn't die. He was just taken to heaven in a whirlwind. You can look at that in 2 Kings 2.11. Enoch is the only other person in the Bible that was taken to heaven without dying. And you can look at that in Genesis 5, verses 22 through 24. So they both had unusual deaths. They also are two witnesses that Israel trusted. Moses led them out of Egypt, out of slavery, while they were slaves in Egypt. And Elijah represents one of the greatest prophets. And so that might be a reason These would be two very trusted witnesses of Jesus coming into his glory here in this transfiguration. Another reason is that Moses is identified with the law and Elijah is identified as one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is sometimes referred to as the law and the prophets. The law being the first five books of Moses, that's the law, and then the rest of the Old Testament being referred to as the prophets. And so that would also show that we were now moving into a new era of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised Messiah coming in and coming into his glory. So let's pick back up with Luke 9. We're now in verse 36. And when the voice had spoken, and that's God, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent. That means Peter, James, and John, they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. So why? Why did they keep silent about it? Well, if we go over to Matthew 17, 9, we actually see that Jesus told them to not tell anyone about it until after Jesus had risen from the dead. And they obeyed what Jesus said. It was only after the resurrection that Peter, James, and John told others about this glorious preview of Christ's second coming that they witnessed. Now, why would Jesus tell them not to say anything? There's probably several reasons. One, many people probably wouldn't have believed it if they told them about it anyway. 
I think some of the other reasons are that the Romans, if they heard about it, they might have feared some type of uprising and tried to kill off Jesus and the apostles before their appointed time. And I think Jesus also didn't want to have the Jews try to make him king. Remember, they kept trying to make him king. And we'll see that even again as we read on in the rest of Luke's gospel. They're looking for the Messiah king, and they wanted to make Jesus king. And he didn't want to be made king then. That wasn't the coming of the kingdom. That would come about in the second coming. And so he didn't want to have that happen. So he instructed them not to say anything until after his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, let me take you over and show you where Peter talks about this. And this is what gives me the belief that over in verse 27, that what Jesus was talking about was in fact this transfiguration that was witnessed by Peter, James, and John, because then Peter actually did talk about it after his death, burial, and resurrection. If you'll go over to 2 Peter, that's way towards the back of the New Testament. If you go over to Revelation and then just start coming back over to the left, you'll go through the epistles of John and then you'll get to Peter. So let's go to 2 Peter and I want to look at chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he's talking about the transfiguration. Verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So he's referring back to the transfiguration. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So you have right here Peter telling you, yes, I was one of the eyewitnesses of the transfiguration when we saw Jesus in his glory. So that's why I think the best reading of that verse 27 was Jesus was telling them that there would be some of those, and it turns out it was Peter, John, and James, who would see Jesus in his glorified state before they died. All right, let's go back over to Luke 9, and we'll pick back up with verse 37. And it came about on the next day, so this is the next day after the transfiguration, that when they had come down from the mountain, a great multitude met him, met Jesus. And behold, a man from the multitude shouted out, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth as it mauls him. It scarcely leaves him. And he says, and I begged your disciples to cast it out, this demon, and they could not. There's a little bit more in Matthew's gospel on this event. In fact, Matthew 17 verse 15 says that this man who's addressing Jesus actually addresses Jesus as Lord, which would lead you to believe that he's acknowledging Jesus as divine and believed in Jesus' teaching, believes that what Jesus taught was the truth from God. It also talks about how this demon also threw this boy into fires and into ponds of water and actually also made him where he was deaf and mute. So this demon was really messing with this poor boy. He says in verse 40, I begged your disciples to cast it out and they could not. So 
the disciples, you remember, Jesus gave them power to cast out demons, and they were doing that, but for some reason, they couldn't cast out this demon. They had performed miracles, but this demon was a very strong demon. It's not that they didn't lack the power. They just lacked the faith to be able to cast out this demon. And so Jesus answers them. We see in verse 41, and he says, O unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. So Jesus is rebuking their distorted belief that these disciples, they had lack of faith. They didn't believe they could cast out this demon. Here, I think this rebuke, Jesus is speaking really not just of the apostles here. He's talking about all of Israel. But the apostles, they had saving faith and they trusted Jesus, but they didn't trust that they had enough power to cast out this demon. And that's what Jesus is rebuking them about. Saving faith, when you go over and read in Hebrews 11.1, it says that faith is an assurance of things hoped for in the conviction of things not seen. So biblical truth is having absolute confidence in what God has promised, even though we haven't seen it or experienced it, but it's having that type of faith. Verse 42, while he was still approaching the demon, the demon throws this man on the ground, threw him into a violent convulsion. So he gave one last attempt probably to try to kill this boy, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. So we see that Jesus has power over these demons and he healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. You can go look at a little more detail on this event if you want over in Mark 9 verses 21 to 26. And so they're all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask about this statement. What Jesus is saying is basically in about six months from this time in Luke's gospel, Jesus is going to be crucified. But they're still looking for this conquering king. And Jesus knows that they couldn't handle all the truth quite yet, so he conceals some of this from them. But they're going to look back on this, and they're going to be reminded later that this is exactly what Jesus told us was going to happen. Now, as we come to verse 46, we're now actually back in Capernaum. You can pick that up if you go look at Mark 9, verse 33. So they're back in Capernaum which, remember, is Jesus' sort of home base. It's on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. So that's where they are. We pick up in verse 46. It says, And an argument arose among them, this is among the apostles, as to who might be the greatest. So you can see pride is coming in to the apostles. They forget that Jesus is the one that gave them all their power And pride is a mark that I think we all have that shows our fallen humanity. We're all self-centered. We all want to promote ourselves. We all want to be somebody. I struggled with that. I still struggle with it, wanting to be somebody rather than just be a servant of the Most High God. And so Jesus is going to take this opportunity to really teach them about how destructive pride is and how he expects his followers to be humble and to not be prideful, 
to put ourselves aside. You remember we started off the lesson today, going back over to verse 23, where Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. He wants us to set ourselves aside and focus on Jesus. And he's going to give a couple of lessons here on that. Verse 47, and Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, actually, when you go and look at this account over in Mark 9, verse 33 and 34, he didn't hear them talking about this. He knew that's what they were saying. He knew that they were talking about who should be the greatest. It says here, he took a child and stood him by his side. And he's going to take this opportunity to show their focus on the crown rather than the cross right now is very disruptive. It destroys relationships. They shouldn't be focused on who is greater than the other. In fact, in heaven, there isn't going to be people who are greater than others. We'll each receive different rewards in heaven, but that's not how heaven is set up, he's going to say. So let's look at these lessons that he gives. He brings this child and he says to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, this is the one who is great. Remember, all that they had was given to them by the Lord. All that we have, all of our achievements, everything we have, our jobs, our family, everything we have, our friends, they've all been given to us by God. None of us have anything to contribute to our salvation. Actually, none of us even merit entrance into God's kingdom. It's all been given to us by God. And he's saying, whoever is the least among you, that's the one who is the greatest. And by taking this child, remember children back in the Jewish culture were viewed as nothing. I mean, they had nothing to contribute. They were just nothing in society. And he's saying, you need to be like this child. You need to be nothing. It's all about me. Everything you have has been given to you by God, is what Jesus is saying. And so now, John, I think, is feeling a little convicted by this lesson, and he's starting to think about how he's been holding himself with some pride, and look what he says. And John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he does not follow along with us. So John is starting to say, you know, maybe we were kind of prideful. We were wanting to be the exclusive ones that had this power, and we didn't want anybody else exercising this power that maybe you had given them, and we were kind of being prideful about it. And here's what Jesus says to him. Jesus answered him and said, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. You know, when you get prideful, you start wanting to have this exclusive group We can even see that in some of our churches, in some of the denominations. If you're not one of us, then you can't possibly be a Christian because we're special. We're a special group. And what Jesus is saying is every person is either for Christ or against him. He's calling for unity among people who are believers, that we need to be believers, but we need to be humble and realize that placing Jesus as our priority is the most important thing rather than always trying to elevate ourselves and trying to glorify ourselves, which we're so prone to do. So now beginning in verse 51, at this point in Luke's gospel, 
We're going to see a shift now. Jesus has concluded his ministry in Galilee. He's now going to begin his final journey on to Jerusalem. He's going to go through lots of towns in Judea along the way. This is kind of the final preparation and training of the apostles that we're going to see. But his focus now is on going to Jerusalem, and his focus is on his going rather than his coming. His focus is on going and suffering and being crucified and paying our debt for all of our sins. That's going to be his focus as we go forward here now in Luke's gospel. So verse 51, And it came about when the days were approaching for his ascension that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and they entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. So you remember, we've talked about this before, Samaria was an area that the Jews, they can't stand Samaritans. And it goes back, all the way back, because the northern kingdom of Israel, you remember the ten tribes that made up the northern kingdom of Israel, they were conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and then they intermarried with the Jews. And because of all that, when that happened, then the Jews would not allow Sumerians to come and worship in the temple in Jerusalem. So then the Sumerians built their own temple, and the Jews destroyed that, actually destroyed it during the intertestamental period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But they hated the Samaritans. And in fact, when they were traveling, they wouldn't even go through Samaria. They would go around it. And here Jesus is saying, you know what? I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going right through Samaria to get there because I want to try to save some of the Samaritans on the way. And yet the Samaritans, we're going to see, they reject Jesus. Let me read it, and then I'll come back and explain some of that. When it says he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem, that means that's where he's going. He is going to Jerusalem. Nothing's going to get in the way of him going to Jerusalem. And the plan is to show up there on Passover. And nothing's going to stop him from doing that. But we see in verse 53, the Samaritans did not receive him because he was journeying with his face towards Jerusalem. And what that means is the Samaritans didn't like anyone who was going to go worship in Jerusalem because they weren't allowed to go. So between the Samaritans and the Jews, they just didn't like each other. And so they didn't receive Jesus. They didn't know of Jesus' miracles Probably, maybe they had heard of it, but more than likely, because Jews didn't really mingle with the Samaritans, they probably weren't aware of all of Jesus' miracles. And so it may have been they rejected Jesus just because of their religious traditions, and they didn't like anyone who worshipped in Jerusalem, since they couldn't worship there. Or it may have been that they actually heard that Jesus was claiming to be the Lord and Savior, and they actually rejected him for that. It's not clear here, but what we do see is that they rejected Jesus. Even though they did, we're going to see Jesus still extends mercy to them. Mercy is unconditional love to meet a person's needs, no matter whether they deserve it or not. And we see that Jesus is still extending mercy to the Samaritans. And this is a perfect follow-up lesson to where he was just teaching about humility. He's willing to go even places where there's hate. He was willing to go there and extend mercy to them. Now, since the Samaritans are rejecting Jesus, we see in verse 54, 
And when Jesus' disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? This is probably, this may be why uh, James and John, they're called the sons of thunder because of their volatile nature. You can look at that in Mark 3, 17. That's just how they are, the sons of thunder. But Jesus says to them in verse 55, he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. So Jesus just keeps moving. And now as we close out this chapter nine, we're gonna see that Jesus is gonna teach about three different responses to his message. You know, we've seen now some of the Samaritans rejecting Jesus. And so Jesus is gonna teach, again, going back to what he had said over in verse 23, where he said, if you wanna follow me, you gotta deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. So we're gonna see three people who at least on the outside appear to wanna follow Jesus, but their heart is not in it, and he's going to point that out. So verse 57, and as they were going along the road, so somewhere in the vicinity of Capernaum, as I said, someone, some, some follower, said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so what Jesus is saying here to this person is, and by the way, when we go over and look in Matthew, his account in chapter 8, verse 19, we see that this person was a teacher, maybe even a teacher of the law, but Jesus is rebuffing him and basically saying, look, if you're going to follow me, you have to be willing to endure lots of trials. We don't have comforts of home. Jesus sees through his shallow commitment. And he sees that this guy would not be willing to relinquish all of his comfort and his control over his own life to follow Jesus. He wasn't willing to turn over his life to Jesus. He wouldn't be willing to endure the hardships that would happen to him by following. And so he's basically saying, are you really ready to follow a person who has no home, has no comforts of home? Are you really ready to have no place to call your own? Are you really ready to go and endure persecutions that are going to follow anyone who follows Jesus? And so this is someone who you could call Mr. Too Hasty. This is a person who you can look when we were talking about the soils. This is the person whose seed was sown in the rocky soil in Matthew 13, 20. They're basically not willing to deny themselves. And that was this person's barrier to being able to follow Jesus. He really wasn't committed, and Jesus rebuked him on it. So that's one response. Now let's continue on. Here's a second person, verse 59. And Jesus said to another, follow me. But this other person said, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. By the way, when you look at the way the original language is written about burying his father, it's pretty clear that the father wasn't dead yet. People would say that it was a way of saying, I'm not ready to go do what you're asking me to do yet because I want to wait around for my inheritance from my father. So this is the example of someone who wants to come to Jesus, but only on his own terms. He's willing to follow, but he wants to do it his way 
rather than the way that Jesus is asking him to do. So this is Mr. Too Hesitant. He was more concerned about doing what he wanted to do rather than placing Jesus first. And this would really speak to the people of Jewish faith because it was so important to the Jews to bury family. The burial of family members, if somebody had died, your obligation to go take care of that person trumped everything. You could even avoid doing some of the other obligations that you may need to do to go take care of burying your family members. I think Jesus here is talking about the spiritually dead. That's what he's talking about here. But Jesus is saying, look, you're not wanting to follow me on my terms. You're wanting to follow me on your own terms. And we see that in our churches today. People who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they kind of want to do their own thing. They don't pray. They don't read the Bible. They don't really have a personal relationship with the Lord. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If you're going to follow me, you've got to be willing to give it all up and follow Jesus and place Jesus first and obey Jesus. So then we come to this third person as we close out. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. So this is Mr. Too Homesick. He had reservations. He wanted to follow Jesus, but he also had other things that he wanted to take care of first. And Jesus says to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying, don't get too caught up in all these other relationships. You can't plow by looking backwards. No one can plow a straight row by looking backwards. He's saying, we've got to put Jesus first. And then all our other relationships will be put into order. I think he's also telling us we shouldn't have reservations. We should reevaluate where are we spending our time? What is God asking us to do? And where are we putting him off? Because we've got other things that we think are more important than what Jesus may be telling us to do. He's saying that following him is the most important thing that we've got to do. We've got to let go of the past and follow Jesus. We've got to let go of our old life, the old things that made us comfortable, our riches. It may involve relationships. You're not going to enter the kingdom of God until you actually have denied yourself, going back again to Luke 9, 23 through 24. So let me just summarize what we've studied this morning. Pride, it's the source of a lot of sin. Our pride can get us in trouble all the time. And superficial followers who are really seeking self-fulfillment more than really forgiveness and salvation and following Jesus, they're going to struggle. They may not even have saving faith. Following Jesus means committing to him and being obedient to him and doing what he asks us to do and letting him work in and through us to help build his kingdom. And I think he also tells us that we should expect when we're following him, we should expect tribulation and rejection. And I think he's also talking about here, he's not telling us that we shouldn't love our families, but I see it all the time when I'm talking to people about the gospel and maybe some flawed theology that they might have. And they say, you know, if I go with what you're telling me, that's so different than what my family taught me. And I'm going to be rejected by my family. I think that's some of what Jesus is talking about here. you got to choose. You're going to go with what your family believes or you're going to go with the truth that's written here in this Bible. 
God's Word. Let me stop right there and just see how does this resonate with you? How can we apply this? What do we need to do based on this lesson to actually walk in a way that Jesus is telling us that we take up our cross daily and follow him and deny ourselves. Well, Larry, we got to wake up every morning and turn to God, preferably with a little devotional, with a little prayer time, a little reading of the scripture, and a little understanding of what's important in this life and the life to come, and ask the Holy Spirit to lead us being the Christian he wants us to be that day. And he is clear here in the scriptures, he wants us to do that every day, take up your cross every day, not when you accept Christ as your Savior, but to do it every day and lean on Him, and He'll be the vine, we'll be the branches that bear the fruit He wants us to bear. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It's caused me to think, what things am I hanging on to? What things in my life are getting in the way of having a closer relationship with Jesus? Because I just want to hang on to it. It brings me self-fulfillment. It brings me comfort. It brings me what I think is happiness and joy, and yet it's getting in the way of truly picking up my cross and following Jesus every day. And I'd encourage each of us to pray about that. If you can't think of what that is right now, pray and ask the Holy Spirit to point out what are those things that we're still hanging on to that we need to let go of. Well, Larry, when I think about taking up my cross daily, I often find that hard to do as I will lose my spiritual energy and vigor or Oh, I love what you're saying because I think he was also saying when he was addressing the apostles who couldn't throw out that demon because they were kind of relying on their own strength and they didn't think they had the strength to be able to do it rather than having faith and rely on the Lord. And along with what you're saying, we've got to figure out what are those things in our life that are getting in the way of us having that relationship with the Lord And we can't get rid of them on our own strength. But the Holy Spirit can help us. That's how we can overcome whatever those things are that we continue to hang on to. That God wants us to deny ourselves. Deny those fleshly desires that we have. Deny it. And we can't do it on our own. We've got to have the strength of the Holy Spirit.
That's a great observation. Actually, before that, I didn't mention that today, but we talked about it last time in verse 22. He says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So he was telling them, this is the plan. I'm going to be crucified. That's a great observation that then he says, take up your cross. I'm going to the cross, but you need to take up your cross and follow me. Fantastic. Yeah, that's great. I know every time I think Jesus needs a little help, the Holy Spirit needs a little help, let me go ahead and advance the ball a little bit. I've really messed it up. That's good. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and my weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.